0: Uh, Folks, we are in Romans. It's a letter, as you know. Paul wrote it, and it's stock full of good information. In fact, if you become rightly informed about the contents of Romans, Uh, there's very little chance that you will be theologically led astray. If someone really embraced the contents, the doctrinal truths of Romans, it's very, very unlikely that they're going to be led astray from the truth. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful book for us to study. And tonight we're in Romans chapter 12. Can you believe it? We made it to the 12th chapter. And tonight we're going to look at only verse 1. I wanted to do more. I really had good intentions. But as I look to the verse, it's just so filled with great information, I thought, well, we'll just stop there. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1, if you have a Bible, help yourself to it and meet me at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And here's how it starts. Therefore, uh, folks, I find that an unusual way to begin a new chapter. It's just strange. I mean, if we if we began conversation with one another that way, uh, people would think we're rather weird. If out of the blue, we just came upon someone and said, therefore, and that person would say, therefore what? And I suppose that's the point of the therefore. It obligates us to ask the question, what is the therefore there for? And the answer is what Paul has told us in the preceding chapters. He's taken 11 chapters to speak to us about what's true, doctrinal truth. He's taught us about sin, Jews' sin, Gentiles' sin, everybody's sins. Everybody is in need of a Savior, and so he's taught us about the Savior and what Christ has done to save us from sin. He's taken 11 chapters to develop these themes of sin and sacrificed by Almighty God on our behalf. And in light of all that he has said in 11 chapters, now he says, therefore, in light of what has been said previously, Paul now says, therefore, I urge you. In other words, he's not neutral. He's not passive or indifferent about what he's about to say now. He's giving a very earnest and passionate urging for us to do something. In the first 11 chapters, he told us what's true. And now, from chapter 12 to the rest of Romans 12 to 16, he's going to tell us about what we ought to do about what's true. And this is the way Paul writes many of his letters— First, he tells us about what's true, and then he tells us about how we are to apply the truth. So the first 11 chapters of Romans are about what we are to believe, and then the rest of it is about how we are to behave. What good is it to say you have certain biblical beliefs, but there's no noticeable change in your behavior with reference to those beliefs. Some might say that's what hypocrisy is. If you claim to adhere to biblical truth, but there is no transformed behavior in your life, that's probably hypocrisy. So Paul is saying, I have told you in 11 chapters what you are to believe, and now I'm going to tell you what you are to behave. If your life is not affected by what you say you believe in, you probably don't really believe in what you say you believe in. And so now Paul is going to urge us, and I know he's speaking to us because of the word brethren. I urge you brethren. If you're a Christian, that's you. Uh, because you're adopted into God's family. It's a family term. He's the father. We are brothers and sisters of one another. And he is our father. And so Paul is addressing his remarks now to everyone who is a Christian. If you are a Christian, this is for you. He has something to say to us that requires of us certain behaviors that, frankly, are not expected of non-Christians. Think about it. A Christian has certain responsibilities that a non-Christian does not have. These responsibilities are addressed to us. I urge you, brethren. Now the question is, how is Paul, he's brilliant, we all know that, how is he going to motivate us to do what he says we ought to do in chapter 12 to 16? What is the means by which he's going to move us to voluntarily do what he thinks we ought to do as Christians? Now, he could motivate us by the might of God. God is mighty. He could motivate us by the power of God. God is all-powerful. He could motivate us by the presence of God. He could say nothing done in secret is really in secret because God is ever present. He could motivate us by the holiness of God. He could talk to us about the sinlessness of God, about a God who's not tempted to sin. He could talk to us about his transcendence, and he could motivate us, and he could say he's the great beyond. He could motivate us by talking to us about the sovereignty of God. Maybe some of these attributes are the ones you spoke of in your time of interaction, but he doesn't do any of that. He motivates us By the mercies of God. That's what it says. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. And I learned something anew as I focused on this particular verse, and it's this. Though God is multifaceted and perfect in all of his perfections, the only valid motivation for anything we do as Christians is the mercy of God. If we are motivated to do Bible reading, to pray, to give, to obey, to go, to support missions or become a missionary, to attend church, to share our faith with those around us, if we're motivated to do any of those really, really good things in ways other than by the mercies of God, we are probably being incorrectly Motivated. It has to be the mercies of God that move us to do what we are to do as Christians. It is not, in my opinion, from God's point of view, so much that we do the right thing that concerns Him, but that we do the right thing for the right reason. What if, for instance, you're doing the right thing in order to win God's favor and approval? Now, why would you do that if, by his mercies, you already have his favor and approval? Don't you see? All world religions have elements in them, which consist of the doing of good things, moral and ethical things, Every world religion, but they're different than faith in Christ because every world's religion puts the doing of good things before the mercy of God. And it's by the doing of good things, religionists believe that God then will be motivated, even coerced to show his mercy. But the biblical perspective is entirely different. Mercy comes first, undeserved. God bestows his compassion, his pity, his mercy on us. He doesn't give us what we deserve, judgment, separation, all the rest. He shows us his mercy, and by his mercy, freely given, we are motivated to do the good, moral, and ethical things God requires of us. And that's why Paul makes his appeal to us for good behavior on the basis of the mercies of God. I must tell you, if you're motivated by the bigness of God only, you are incorrectly motivated. If you're motivated by the fact that God is holy, you are incorrectly motivated if you're only motivated by the fact that one day everyone will stand before him so as to be judged, you are incorrectly motivated. You have to be motivated to do the things you choose to do in the Christian life by this and this alone, the mercies of God. Folks, even the doing of good things is wrong if they are being done for the wrong reason. So if you are still trying to win God's favor by the doing of good things, you're making a big mistake. You can't do enough good things. His favor cannot be won by any merit that resides in us. For all have sinned, Paul told us already, and fall short of of the glory of God. When we who have such shortcomings stand before God, it cannot be on the basis of any good things we've done. It must be on the basis of the mercies of God. If you are motivated in any other way to do the things you now do, you're probably more religious as a person than you are as a person who has a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a big, big Difference. Folks, you have, if you're a Christian, God's favor by your acceptance of the very, very good thing he has already done for you. He suffered, he died, he was resurrected, and in all of that he showed his mercy to If you're motivated by anything but the mercies of God, you're incorrectly motivated. Notice in the English text it says the mercies, plural, of God. And that's an accurate reflection of the Greek. The word in Greek is also plural. What does that mean? It means the mercy of God is not a limited quantity. It means the mercy of God is not shown to us at a particular point in our life only. It means the mercy of God is not an event which God has orchestrated and now which is over. No, by the mercies of God, it means God's constant disposition towards us who need mercy is to give it. How are you doing tonight? Are you in need of mercy? Are you aware of flaws, shortcomings, sins, Well, God's mercies are abundant, never exhausted, and his response to you and me at all times, not just one time, at all times is to reveal his mercy. I tell you, folks, he's strong for sure. He's plenty, mighty. He's all-knowing, and he's ever-present. He's transcendent, and he's sovereign. He's holy, and he is without sin. I know about all this. But if he were, were to be all of these things, yet not merciful. Could you please tell me what hope would you and I possibly have? That's the key ingredient which is behind his willingness to save. Folks, it is only by the mercies of God that anyone here, that anyone anywhere could possibly be saved. And so Paul Understanding this well urges us to do something. You'll see in just a second what it is. But first, he wants us to be properly motivated. He's writing to the brethren, folks who are already saved, folks who already have God's grace and mercy, folks who already have his approval and favor because of the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. Paul, who knows all of this, is saying, before I tell you what you need to do, let me first be sure you know why you are to do it. Folks, if it is anything but the mercies of God, if it's the fear of God that is motivating you to do what you're doing, you may not yet be redeemed. You may not know the God of all mercy. He imposes upon us no longer laws except a law of love. And because of his merciful and compassionate love, he's proving even to the angelic host that the strongest motivation on earth is not to fear him, but to respond by loving him to his love first shown us. So Paul makes this appeal. Do this by the mercies of God. And now, He's about to tell us about a very weighty and costly thing that we are to do. And if you think about it, it is really weighty. What we're uh, about to be urged to do is quite overwhelming and will cost us just about everything. Look, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, here it is, to present your bodies. I happen to know that you who are here are here. And I'll tell you how I know that. I can see your body. And when I see your body here, I am right to conclude that you are here. Because wherever your body is, you is this side of heaven while you are still alive you and your body are inseparable there has not been a time in your life when you have left your body uh, or when your body has left you now i know about these out of body experiences which are nutso so let me just use that very technical word So that's just ridiculousness. You are contained in your body. This is your house, and you never leave without it. You always take it with you. So when Paul says, I urge you, brethren... Christians, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. He's not so much talking about the bones and the sinew and the muscles and the skin. He's talking about the totality of your being. Everything about you is contained in your body. You cannot function in life without your body. Your body is your vessel, your vehicle by which you go here and go there. You have arms and legs and all the kind, eyes and thoughts and all the rest, you are contained in your body. And so, what Paul is essentially saying here, that's why I say this is so weighty. He's saying, uh, uh, therefore, in light of what's true, I urge you, brethren, uh, by the mercies of God, don't be, don't, don't, don't be mistaken about that. I urge you by the mercies of God to present the totality of your being. That's what he says. So, in essence, you know, God is not asking us to dedicate to Him our gifts, our abilities, our money, our time, our ideas, our creativity, or anything else. Oh, no, it's much worse than that. God is asking us to dedicate ourselves, the totality of our being. I think in many cases we may be underselling salvation. We may be making it just a little too convenient and easy for people to pray a prayer and uh, persuade them that they're in the, the embrace of the Lord Jesus, maybe. But it's weightier than that. It means turning from self to Savior. It means relinquishing. Here's the tough one. Uh, our rights to ourselves, you know how we're prone to say, I have a right to do this, I have a right to do that, everyone has a right to be happy, you know, this kind of stuff? This is essentially saying, no, that's, that, 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 that's not really true. This is saying the one thing that you can dedicate to God that he does not have unless you freely choose to dedicate it to God is your right to yourself, So, in light of the first 11 chapters, in light of biblical truth, sin and salvation, in light of the mercy of God, Paul is saying, I am urging you to present the totality of your being. How could it not be that if one died for you, you will not live for him? That's what it says. You know, could I tell you something? Many Christians are not living this way, and that's why we who are Christians oftentimes look like those who are not. We don't look distinctively different. And so when we offer the transforming gospel to people, they say, I don't see much evidence of transformation in you. Why should there be, therefore, in me? When we speak to people about the Lord Jesus and His Lordship, but they don't see us living under His Lordship, why should they buy the product we want so much to sell? And so you see, this is a very serious thing. I do not believe the world needs more Christians in order to be reached. It needs more Christians who heed Paul's urging and become Romans 12, chapter 1 people, people who are willing to dedicate sacrificially the entirety of their being contained in their bodies, wherever their body goes. They acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. When the world sees people like that, they may take more note of Christ in us, who is the hope of glory. So this is quite a call to radical discipleship, it seems to me. In fact, Paul says, therefore I urge you brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. You know, you could read this and you could say, wait just a second, sacrifice? I thought sacrifices were Old Testament things. I didn't know there are sacrifices required in the New Covenant. Yeah, but they are. But the sacrifices required of us in the New Testament are entirely different than those required of us in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice was slaughtered on the altar. In the New Testament, God calls upon us to be a living sacrifice. He wants us for as long as we have life to live for him. And I must tell you, the concept of a living sacrifice, did you know this, was foreign to Greek and Roman thinking and even Jewish thinking. This notion of a living sacrifice, kind of a contradiction in terms, but not in the mind of God. So the New Testament indeed calls for sacrifice, but of a different sort. You know, here's the deal. Old Testament sacrifice was for sin. New Testament sacrifice is for service. Why no longer for sin? Because the Lamb of God is the once and for all sacrifice for sin. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus said, it is finished, paid in full, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father What he did is the totality of what needs to be done in order for us mercifully to be forgiven. So New Testament sacrifice is not that which is for sin. That's covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus. It's for service and serving God wholeheartedly with every ounce of our being is indeed, isn't it, a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. It's not so easy, is it? We have our ups and downs. We really have to set our mind on this. This is our identity. We are supposed to be living holy, acceptable sacrifices to almighty God. We really need his help for this, (coughs) don't we? Someone said the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. (coughs) We don't want to do that. We want to say, oh God, keep me in my place. You saved me to serve and to bring glory to your name. So uh, when we offer our bodies, as Paul calls for it, we are offering the totality of our being as a living and holy sacrifice to Almighty God. And then Paul says in this final phrase, he says, this is your spiritual service of worship. Now, do you have a Bible that says this is your reasonable service of worship. Well, then you, you have a good Bible. Everybody does. <laughs> Wait a second. How can we both be right? Is it spiritual service of worship or is it reasonable service of worship? Well, it's both. Uh, and the reason why it's translated differently, yet both correctly, is partly due to the actual Greek word underlying our translation and also the context. So the Greek word is the word logikos, What does that sound like? Logic. And so Paul could say, listen folks, it's only something which is reasonable that I'm urging you to do. If this Jesus, sinless, only begotten, beloved Son of God, condescended, became enfleshed, suffered an excruciating death, (coughs) did it all for you, died for you, isn't it reasonable to live totally for him. In fact, Paul would say, nothing else makes sense. How could it make sense to be a part-time Christian, a part-time follower of the Lord Jesus? So even, I know we're saved by grace through faith. I understand that. But having been saved, now we're called upon to render sacrifices of service to the Lord Jesus Christ with the totality of our being. And Paul says, This is spiritual worship. This is reasonable. This is what is consistent with principles of logic and reason. Offering the totality of our being in gratitude for the mercy of God already shown to us is very logical and reasonable, says Paul. Folks, when you realize, you and I, what God has done for us by his mercy, then we realize total commitment to him. Is really the only thing that makes sense. If the Son of God died for me, then the least I can do is live for Him. Don't you agree? Yeah, yeah. I hope you do. So the text says, I'll bet you could uh, recite this verse even without looking. You want to try it? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by what? the mercies of God, to do what? To present what? Your bodies, how? A living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And what is that? Which is your reasonable or spiritual service of worship. See, I did this on purpose. By the way, that's how you memorize Scripture. You slow down. And you chew on each word. You squeeze out the juice. (laughs) You take it in. You imbibe every word, every phrase. You read a word. Then you pick up your head. And you chew on it. You meditate on it. You feast on it. You think about it. You pray about it. Before you know it, even without trying, you have the verse memorized. And so for Paul, based on the last phrase in this verse, true worship is much more than our participation in a church worship service. For Paul, true worship is the offering to God of one's body and what one does with it every day with our eyes, our hands, our feet, our thoughts, our heart. True worship says Paul, is an everyday thing. A a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week thing. Attending church for worship is great, magnificent, a privilege and a responsibility. But true worship encompasses the totality of one's being. In other words, we must be willing to not only say it is Sunday, I'm going to church to worship. We must also be willing to say, it's Monday, I'm going to work to worship. Or, I'm going out to the garden to worship. Or, I'm going to school to worship. Or, this is a bit of a stretch, but I think it's true. I'm going shopping to worship. That's what it is. What does this mean? It means in all the activities of life, I'm mindful of the lordship of Jesus Christ who suffered and died, rose again for me. And I want to live for him, whether it's in the mall, whether it's in the garden, whether it's in the school or the factory. I don't want to compartmentalize my worship. I don't want it to be a a Sunday thing but not a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, rest of the day thing. I want the Worship means to attribute worth to one who is worthy of it, and that's the Lord Jesus. I want to do that which attributes worth to you in every phase and aspect of our life. Now, folks, many people will not come to church who need to, but we can reach them out there and then eventually they'll come to church. If they see worshipers in here, they may be aroused to want that. That's wonderful. But they also must see worshipers out there. They must see us attributing worth to Almighty God. I must say, certain recreational pursuits don't do it. Attendance at certain movies don't do it. Imbibing certain beverages don't do it wearing certain clothes too short, too tight, too this, too that. Don't do it, especially if you're a guy. Now, none of those things are necessary uh, to change in order to have the mercy of God. He's compassionate. He pities us. He withholds from us what we deserve because Jesus absorbed all the stripes do us. We already have the mercy of God, so changing your ways is not meant to win his favor. We already have it. But by the mercies of God, I want to change my ways, don't you? So that the way I live out there is consistent with the one who has shown me superabundant grace. And mercy. And I think if we do those things, people will ask us to share with them the secret of our success, so to speak. What makes you tick? People will ask in so many words. And then the Bible says, always be ready to make a defense to those who ask you, but do so in a good, gracious, and intelligent way. So for Paul, worship was all-encompassing. But he would say, but please, says he. says he, before you leave here tonight, before you go out to apply Romans 12, 1, please make sure you're hearing again and again this phrase, as if a choir in the background is singing it to you. This I do because of the mercies of God. Let that just stick like crazy. Otherwise, you're improperly motivated. It doesn't impress God if you're so fearful of Him that you do things you don't otherwise choose to do. No, you always want to hear in the back like a choir is singing it with resounding voices. You want to always hear when you're about, oh God, I'm about to have my devotional time today. I'm about to go witness to my next door neighbor. I'm about to go on a missions trip. I'm about to pray for missionaries. I'm about to give to a Christmas offering. I'm about, oh God, why? I'm about to do this because of the mercies of God. Oh God, I'm not doing this to win your favor. It's already been bestowed upon me by virtue of my attachment to your most favored son. I'm already the recipient of your grace and mercy, and I would bust if I didn't have a way to express my gratitude. That's why I do what I do. Oh God, you're so big, you can snuff me out with a, with just a thought. In fact, you brought all things into being in the power of your word. You can bring them out of being just as easily. But oh God, it's not that that motivates me to do what I do. It's your mercy towards me. Oh God, if you were just raw power, I might have to bow before you, but I would do it grudgingly but you're more than raw power. You are a fist, but you're in a velvet glove. And oh God, when I bow before you now, it's not a have to thing, it's a want to thing. Why would I not yield to the one who loves me most? There's nobody who has shown to me mercy, the likes of which you have shown to me. I tell you, if you're not motivated by the mercies of God, you're just a religious person. There's no difference between you and Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Shintoism and all the rest. Everyone is motivated by the fear of almighty transcendent deity. But he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I won't give you a smack. I will give you, I'll give you rest. You will give rest to the one who is a wrongdoer? Yes. Why? Because I am the God of all mercy. If that doesn't turn you on, so as to do what Paul said we ought to do, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I just don't know. I just don't know what, what will. Folks, worship is what we do with our lives, and worship is what we do because of God's mercy, and mercy is what we have because we have done wrong. Have you done wrong? If so, you qualify for God's mercy. And if you qualify for God's mercy, you qualify for the worship of God with the totality of your life. Are you a wrongdoer? That's the prerequisite to receive God's mercy. Have you received God's mercy? That's the prerequisite for being a worshiper of Almighty God with the entirety of your life. Folks, go from this place tonight with maybe a needed new start, a fresh start. If you're a Christian, you're not disqualified unless you let the evil one persuade you. You are. Oh, no, don't do that. Be motivated by the mercies, plural, of Almighty God to get back with the program, especially as this approaching season comes upon us when we acknowledge the merciful coming to earth Of Almighty God, who has no beginning nor end, but came as a babe to be enflashed, to identify with us, relate to us, suffer, and die for us. The Christmas event is the most merciful event known to humankind. There should not be one Christian who doesn't enter into this season with joy inexpressible. Yeah, but I'm a wrongdoer. Yes. And therefore, you qualify for God's mercy. And if you qualify for God's mercy, it should motivate you to attribute worth to the most merciful God with the totality of your lives. Folks, there is a great song, a hymn, that was offered to us in the early 1700s. Most of us were not there then by a magnificent hymn writer, Isaac Watts. Have you heard of Isaac Watts? And it is called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Listen to the words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. And the last stanza says, were the whole realm, think of this, where the whole realm of nature mine, That were a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Isaac Watts got the essence of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I would like to invite you to stand. Let's attempt to sing this together. And would you make this a song perhaps? of re-dedication and re-commitment of yourself as a living sacrifice set apart to the glory of God. Oh God in heaven, thank you for all that you've done, are doing, will do for us, for your mercies are never ending. Oh God, may we be motivated to worship you with our lives more. But may we be motivated rightly by your mercies. Thank you, O oh God, for the state in which we now stand, enveloped by your love, adopted into your family, considered to be children, even though at times we go astray. Thank you, oh God, for never separating from us, divorcing us, or letting us go. Oh God, these are your superabundant mercies. Oh Lord, help us to in the sunlight of your mercy. Lord Jesus, make us to be those who worship, yes, in worship services, but as a lifestyle, let this Christmas our gift be to you, a yielding of our right to ourselves, an offering of ourselves to you as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. And this we pray In the name of Jesus, the God of all mercy and grace, amen.